0: To support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more. Your traffic on the website, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out just head down to triviumstudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again. Welcome back to Gods of the Wild, an inquiry into laws received by Eli Brown. The following is chapter four, Fear and the Fire. Now please sit back relax and enjoy chapter four fear and the fire how do you picture the end times after society has fallen you know the future i'm referring to do you imagine a bunker maybe a lonely city overgrown by a forest once held at bay by its bustling activity The Man Max series, a staple of American fiction, popularized the image of a vast desert expanse, society having been quite literally consumed by the sands of time. This is how I picture the end, a sort of desert wasteland, consumed by the fire and fury of men's mistakes. The Greek historian Xenophon, in his History Anabasis, recounts the fall of Nineveh, the story which begins with a herring description. After fleeing the Battle of Kunaxa, the Greeks come across an ancient city in ruins buried in the sand. Xenophon describes the walls of the city being a 100 feet tall and 25 meters thick, 7 miles in circumference, and made of bricks stacked atop 20 foot cuts of stone. Apparently, a former king of Persia had besieged the city, and after the appearance of a great cloud which veiled the sun, the inhabitants of the fortress were forced to abandon it, leaving the ruins behind in the sand. I think this is where my image of the end times comes from a great civilization forced to flee because they blocked out the sun. Sound familiar? The only spring break I've, I've, trip I've ever taken was to Moab, Utah, when I was 17. Three of my close friends and I loaded up a hatchback and headed for the desert. It was my first time on an adventure of that kind, over 12 hours from home, and the excursion took months of preparation. I have never much liked trips like that, those that require extensive planning, I mean. The consideration of each and every detail creates expectations for the outing, which more often than not blow by any reality this world has to offer. Yet, at the time, I had not yet embarked on such a journey, and, therefore, I was full of predictions. I had driven through the deserts of Utah before, making an annual pilgrimage from Montana to Arizona to visit my grandparents. We had cruised through Monument Valley, past the red rocks and grey stormy skies, even stopped at the occasional gas station to pick through the souvenirs unique to this part of the country. I had more personal experience with the sands of Arizona, where I spent many an afternoon pulling weeds in my grandmother's garden. My brother and I used to chase lizards around the property, running back and forth as the tiny little creatures scurried just out of our reach. There were so many types of cacti, filled with the holes of nesting birds, some stretching up into the sky while others crawled along in the dirt, all baking in the dry heat of each day's sun. Once, my grandfather had pointed out a tarantula, somehow appearing neighborly in its jaunt across the sand, and ever since we had loved to search for them, looking for the holes in which they hide. Even despite these signs of existence, however, the desert was desolate, devoid of life that was all too present among the trees of my home. Compared to the forest, those creatures which did take up residence in the landscape lived lonely lives, staying alive in a place few beings could. The heat and drought kept most things away, leaving room for the sprawling cities of the American Southwest. This was essentially how I understood the region for most of my childhood, the land of retirees and little else. For weeks leading up to our trip, I thought about the heat. I thought about how nice it would be to be hot in March, hiking behind between the dunes in the glow of the midday sun. I thought about the silence, the crunching of the sand beneath our feet, the occasional call of Dove in the distance. I picked our campsite based on shade trees, made sure to... Be- made sure to buy plenty of water, and even pared down my sleeping kit, leaving behind a couple of blankets so as to keep them from getting sandy. When we finally loaded into the Subaru, having just placed our last couple of things, I wore only the pair of pants I was bringing along with my sandals, ankles turning pink as they rubbed against the snow. Before long, we were off, traveling around the east side of the lake, headed to Moab. We hiked to Delicate Arch on the second day, a reconnaissance mission for the adventure we had planned when we first decided to come to Utah. Moab, a community nestled in the hills of southwest Utah, is adorable, a little camp town full of bike shops and climbing outfits. We left our campsite there early as the sun was coming up and headed for the entrance of the park, a short drive from the edge of the village. We didn't quite beat the crowd and had to wait in line for about half an hour, watching the sun rise over the hills round us. The rocks in the area are beautiful, a psychedelic stir of reds and oranges. Beside us, a huge sand dune covered what had clearly once been a tall grassy knoll, and the sand twinkled in the early light of the morning. Two men were ascending the far ridge of the hill, carrying what looked like surfboards along with them. After reaching the top, they caught their breath, sat down the boards, and clearly wished each other well, their high-five drowned out by the rustle of the breeze in the canyon. They set off, one by one, coasting back and forth across the dune, surfing over the granulated rock, carving lines, and kicking up dust. At the edge of each turn, as one end of the board whipped into, into position, a cloud of particles would erupt from the ground, hanging briefly as if suspended before falling heavily back to earth. We all sat in silence, watching along with the rest of the line as the sand surfers worked, slowly making their way from top to bottom. The man standing outside the pickup in front of us, stretching and smoking a cigarette, took in the scene as he leaned against his truck. Behind us, a a minivan rolled down the rear windows, revealing a small family gazing out at the dune as if it were a movie. Finally, the men skittered out onto the pavement, jumping casually from their boards the moment they touched the asphalt. As if on cue, the rest of us clapped. Finally, we passed the little brown building, exchanging our money for a map. We wound around the meadow and mounted a hill, passing out a view of the line of cards behind us. In what seemed like seconds, we had arrived at the parking area, already filling up as the sun finally crested above the hills. We loaded our gear as quickly as we could and walked out to the trailhead, excitement mounting by the moment. We consulted our map, we set off on the trail and found that it was plainly defined as a path among the stones. Soon after we left the lot, the path came to an end and our journey truly began. I had never encountered a trail of this kind, a treasure hunt on top of the rocks. As as was noted in the guidebook, the trail is marked by cairns, or stacks of stones meant to light the way. When the path ended, I wanted to seek them out, following the advice provided to us by the ranger. Yet, I was soon overruled, and we followed the crowd instead. We navigated like cars in the fog, merely following the taillights of the vehicles ahead. Before long, my disappointment had faded, as we trekked above what looked like the surface of the moon. The rocks, stand. The rocks, sandstone, were almost sticky with texture. Upon discovering this fact, I was soon on top of the world, jumping from ridgeline to ridgeline, with a king's view of the desert. As the sun reached the center of the sky, Delicate Arch finally came into view, mounted on a cleft of rock ris- rising several stories above the floor of the desert. The trail kept hikers on the ridge, thereby allowing access to the feature, seeing as sheer cliffs prevented any ascent from the sand. Though still early in the day, the arch was crowded with people, snapping family pictures from the nearest side of the rock. We approached the arch all the same, and, as we drew close, it almost appeared man-made, sculpted in a workshop and placed upon this pedestal. The rock was already warm from its exposure to the sun, and the heat of the day soon conjured sweat from our brows. Before long, we were back on the trail, following a group towards the lot from which we had come. Hot and lifeless, other than the crowds. Exactly what I, ex- exactly what I had expected from the desert. It was on the return trip that I learned not to trust such intuitions. Later that day, After a restless nap in the heat of the afternoon, we were back on the road, clearing the edge of town as the businesses began to turn their lights on. The sun, now on the other side of the sky, was just disappearing behind the hills to our left, a dazzling sunset welcoming us back to the world. The rocks around us lit up with the hues of the sky, glowing as if lit from the inside by the heat of the day. We passed by the sand dune, marked with the tracks that the surfers had left earlier, The ranger station, now easily accessible, was closed, window covered by a board as if preparing for a storm. The trip to the parking lot seemed longer as the golden hour descended upon us, the cars silent as we all tried to blink the sleep from our eyes. Finally, just as the last hikers reached their cars, we found the turnout and pulled in, leaving the asphalt behind us. Night was falling as we sat out on the trail, headlights bobbing along the rocks. Around us, the silence of the day had been erased by the scuffles and chatters of life. The desert now erupted into a symphony of sound. Just stepping out of the car, it was apparent that the change in temperature was going to be noticeable, and my bag was now full of the little cold weather gear I had brought, weighing me down as I hiked once again down the path. Ahead of us, in the dim glow of our lights, our eyes could make out lizards dancing across the trail, tails weaving, leaving marks like the surfers in the sand. The occasional bat whizzed by in our peripherals, causing all of our heads to turn, staring at the thing that was no longer there. In the distance, the howls of coyotes echoed across the sandstone, a haunting reminder that bigger creatures lived here too. In the small meadow below us, the buzzing of insects could be made out, sticking to the trickle of water that flowed through that section of the dust. Eventually, we reached the end of the dirt, and the sandstone rose into the darkness ahead of us, with no bootmarks or old wooden signs to let us know which direction to go. We found the first cairn, hidden in the shadows, and took several steps forward, searching for the second. Without the chatter of the group, all preoccupied with the looking, The sound of life in the desert was deafening, pounding on my ears as I scanned for the stack. We made our way like this across the ridgelines, picking slowly from one cairn to the next, several miles done entirely in the death grip of the night. When we reached the arch, we took some photos of the sky, night photography through the natural features of the landscape. Around us, the the night was heavy and black as the ocean, filling the steep drop below us with inky, writhing waves. Even our headlights did little to ease the sense of being on the water, beams disappearing into the space when shown off of the sides of the peninsula. No longer hot and lifeless, I was now on a shoreline. I had discovered an ocean in the desert, brought to life by the reawakening of the world around us. It's a little known fact that the Sahara is greening in fact deserts around the worlds are slowly coming to life a satellite image taken of our planet reveals such places shrinking being engulfed by life forms around them as the world's glaciers melt it was first revealed to ecologists doing comparative analysis when viewed alongside previous images contemporary captures reveal a trend towards photosynthesis There have been several theories posited in response to these findings, but the greening of our deserts is fairly indisputable. The amount of landmass covered in sand is slowly growing smaller in these regions, being replaced by the life which was once held beneath the surface. This is in no way making up for humanity's contributions to our atmosphere, the pollution we all know so well, But it is an interesting discovery, insofar as the deserts themselves are responding to the climate. I imagine the ocean that night, surging up from the inky darkness, but that doesn't negate the life force present in the desert, leading my exhausted mind up to the edge of hallucination. Between the deafening noise and strange frosty chill, there is no doubt that the sands are alive, animated by the creatures that call the desert home. Desolate as the rock may appear, it, along with every being there, is under the same constant pressure to evolve as everywhere else. We shouldn't be surprised that we have an effect on the dunes at the edges of our civilization, even though we refuse to build our habitats among them. More importantly, however, we shouldn't be surprised that deserts aren't a stagnant feature, mitigated to one section of the earth for all of time by the divine creator which positioned us here desert desertification or the conversion of previously fertile land to desert has been rolled in as one of the phenomenon resulting from climate change a novel feature of our contemporary culture which should be viewed with a decidedly negative connotation in fact according to the united nations the pace of desertification Desertification has accelerated by more than 30 times the historical rate in the modern age, spurred on by both carbon emissions and ineffective agricultural practices. In May of 2019, National Gra- Geographic magazine published an article explaining entitled Desertific- Desertification Explained, in which they noted that nearly two billion people currently live in dry lands threatened by desertification, going on to posit that 50 million may be displaced by 2030. Our deserts are turning to pastures while the rest of the world dries up. There is a certain irony to the permanence with which we view the landscape, casting our expectations of time upon the environment around us. Like retirees rebuilding on a beach, like retirees rebuilding on a beach after after a hurricane, we expect that the boundaries we encountered in some place remain the same, thereby allowing us to live comfortably among the elements. Whether it be a floodplain, desert, or shoreline, we place our delicate creations on the edge of destruction, and then try to limit the environment in an attempt to protect our property. Ranchers expect their land to be suitable for livestock, farmers expect their soil to be fertile, and the population of Los Angeles expects the sun to continue to shine. If any of those things were to change, our expectations would be decimated and our lives would be out of order. We have based our civilization upon the stability of the environment, knowing full well that Earth is rather prone to change. I wonder to this day whether or not Xenophon's apocalyptic discovery was first constructed in the sand, out among the dunes, and exposed to the elements. Most ancient cities built in that region of the world had little choice, though their ability to place the community alongside resources was mostly limited by the environment. It seems more likely to me that those walls were first constructed on fertile ground, at least to some extent, seeing as that would allow the city's population easier access to food and drinking water with such massive dimensions the town clearly had a sizable population they would need access to such necessities and providing them would pose a challenge just like anywhere else though it's impossible to know it would make sense to me that the fortress stood at the edge of the sands marking the boundary between civilization and the wild if this were indeed the case, it would mean that the city was overcome by sand, rather than just descended back into it. The desert, having finally begun to shift from its place in the region, would have, have, to, have, been, would have, have to have moved, thereby defying the expet- expectation of an entirely stagnant feature. For the walls to be partially immersed in the dunes, and the city's corridors to be blocked by dirt, it would have at least taken a storm, if not the transfer of the landscape entirely. Xenophon may have stumbled across the failure to plan from the beginning, or he may have offered evidence of a changing climate, even in his time. I can't help but be curious as to which of our cities would be buried by the dust, left behind in the sand for the next civilization to find. It would make sense in the American Southwest, Phoenix or Las Vegas finally succumbing to the desert around them. Sprawling in short, those places would be quickly overcome, lost in the wind to the sands of time. New York or Seattle, on the other hand, offers more interesting considerations, especially since the climate of those locations seems unfitting to the presence of a desert now. Though the image of Lady Liberty's hand rising from the beach has already made its appearance in Hollywood, it seems to me that the apocalypse could change the layout of the environment so drastically that our expectations for cities overgrown could in all reality be misconstrued. Who knows? Deserts may come to life in the end times. Fear and fire may be upon us already. Thanks again for listening to Gods of the Wild, An Inquiry into Laws Received by Eli Brown. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. To support this broadcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more. Your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience. So we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to triviumstudios.org to support the show. Thanks again.